2: Welcome to the Extra Sauce Podcast.
1: It's my fancy sauce. I want some fancy sauce. Yeah. I'm not done using
2: it. With the czar of sauces, Greg Hill.
3: It's my favorite kind of podcast, Mr. Shu. One of the one of the ones in which we are discussing true crime. I know. You're
2: obsessed. I, I think, am I think you were a detective in a former life.
3: Well, I was able to get away with several crimes in which I stole food from uh, from various uh, convenience stores when growing up. So right. that's probably what it's all about. But uh, I have been obsessed, as have many of you, with The Staircase on Netflix. And that documentary details a uh, an incident that occurred in Durham, North Carolina, in which uh, a, uh, a man named Michael Peterson was charged with murdering his wife when she was found by him uh as uh, it, at least that's what he said at the bottom of a staircase and uh and and uh she was she was bloody and and uh it was a horrible scene and um there is an attorney who is joining us today on extra sauce named uh, Larry Rudolph named Larry what's his name Larry Pollard <laughs> named <laughs> there's an attorney who is joining us today on extra sauce named Larry Pollard who has a theory that I think is the most interesting theory I've ever heard about how Mrs. Peterson yeah. actually died.
2: I think because it makes sense. Yeah, I, It right. really does.
3: Yeah, but it's, but it's amazing. So those of you who are into the staircase, you're going to enjoy what our next guest has to say, and it is nice to have you on the show, Larry.
1: My pleasure. I appreciate the invitation.
3: I'm addicted to true crime. Well, I'm addicted to Netflix, but I'm also adi- I'm addicted to television quite frankly, but hmm. I'm addicted to true crime and I was riveted by the story of your neighbors that is told in The Staircase. Uh-huh. And I was maybe even more riveted when I learned uh about your theory about what happened for for those who who haven't watched The Staircase on Netflix tells the story of a novelist, a, a former former mayoral candidate in, in Durham, North Carolina, who uh, is charged with murdering his wife. His name is Michael Peterson, and he is charged with murdering his wife, Kathleen. Uh, his claim is that she fell down the staircase. Uh, he is uh, he goes to court and and is uh, spoiler alert is convicted. Um, however, you have a theory about what really happened, and it it, uh, it does not involve murder, and I'm wondering how you came about this theory. How, how did you get started on this theory as a neighbor?
1: Uh, I came across this theory because I happened to be Mr. Peterson's next-door neighbor at the time this happened, and I have lived here in this neighborhood for 70 years, mm. and as such, I am acutely aware of the surroundings and some of the wildlife we have here and things of that nature and just being aware of your own surroundings in your neighborhood so to speak well in this instance when this incident happened i had been a uh, guest at a family reunion two years prior to it where my uncle had hired Two ornithologists to come to the family reunion and bring some birds of prey along for a program to entertain the children at the reunion. They had hawks, owls, kites, um, falcons, all kinds of different birds of prey. And it was a very interesting program, and I watched it out of curiosity more than anything else. And I didn't think very much about it until. Two years or three years later when the uh, <clears throat> trial of Mr. Peterson came up. And during the trial, at the when, when it got um, to the very beginning of the trial, they showed the pictures of the wounds on Mrs. Peterson's head. And I said, my goodness, those look like bird tracks. Mm. And I said, but they're too big to be bird tracks." And then I thought, well you know, maybe I should call the ornithologist that gave that program for the children at my family reunion and ask her some questions about whether birds of prey hit human beings. And so I did, and in calling them, I didn't tell them that I was looking into a murder case or anything. I just was asking questions for my own enlightenment. But in the process, I found out that uh, when I asked the, the birds of prey ever hit human beings, uh, the ornithologist said, oh, yes, they, they hit them a lot. I said, well, which ones do that? And She said, owls. Owls hit people a great deal. And it's called being slammed. Mm. And I said, really? <laughs> and she said, yes, describe your uh, area around where this uh, person was injured, and I said, well, uh, there's a lot of large lawns around there, a lot of large houses, there's a swimming pool around there, and she said, oh, well, that's what we call the grocery store, and I said, what do you mean the grocery store, and she said, all of the birds of prey that are in and around these neighborhoods, um, they're usually hanging out. By a water source, and the reason for that is that little vermin and mice and rats and rabbits and squirrels, all the little things that uh, owls and hawks and things of that nature feed on, also need water. They're just like human beings. they got to have a sip of water. And they know that during the daytime, they get attacked by a hawk. So a lot of them wait until the darkness of the night to run over to a water source, get a drink of water, and then run back into the cover of the bushes or the Mm. undergrowth or whatever. And they don't realize it, but the owls are hanging around that water source also, and they're waiting to see the movement. And usually it's the movement of the color white, meaning that they like to find say, a skunk that walks by Hmm. or a rabbit with a white tail or a squirrel with a belly or numerous little things of that nature that might reflect light and contrast to the black soil or ground. So they're there to get their meals. That's what is going on in nature. Uh, Tell me about owls. And I'm aware that we have those kind of birds in our neighborhood. And uh, do they ever kill people? And, well, no, they don't really attack people that much. Uh, They they hit them, and they cut them. They receive, uh, people that get hit by owls usually receive large, uh, deep gashes to the back right corner of their head with such force that it usually knocks them to the ground but doesn't them. It cuts them. And as a result, they have bloody gash wounds on top of their head. On top of your head is where you have three large blood vessels. These blood vessels are severed by an owl coming in at around 30 miles an hour and slamming into the back of this person's head Mm. and sinking their talons, which are needle sharp, all the way down to the skull bone which is the hardest bone in the human body because it protects the brain and they hit the skull bone, they stop and then they grip and they have a tremendous gripping force because of a special tendon that's in the lower part of their legs and their elbows so to speak and when they hit and absorb the impact the feet come up, and this tendon pulls in the talons at about 280 pounds of pressure on a needle point, on actually a needle point on each digit. And when this happens, uh, they create these terrible uh, wounds on the back of this person's head, whoever gets hit. Well, I remember that in the evidence that was presented at trial that the wounds were on the back of her head, uh, this happened at nighttime. Uh, there was a swimming pool close by. Yeah. I said, there may be some similarities here. I think I'm going to go and see if there's any relevance to my hunch that I might have. And I went out to a local museum we have here in Durham called the um, North Carolina Museum of Life and Science. But they directed me to the North Carolina Museum of natural sciences in Raleigh, North Carolina. And I went over there, and this is a very very fine uh museum, one of the best in the country, and they were very instrumental in helping me formulate what I call the owl theory. Because so at this time I didn't have any real proof. I had to find proof. I just had a hunch. Well, I went down to the library at that particular museum, the first book I opened in their library was a, a book by a man named Bent. If I'm not mistaken, Bent or Dent, or that's been so long, I can't exactly remember the exact name. But he was one of the original book writers in pertaining to wild owls. And when I opened it up, I read the paragraph that said, "When owls strike people, they make bloody gash wounds." Um, and I thought, oh my goodness, this is. Uh, this is what happened to relevant. Yeah. And I was getting some expert testimony from the treatises there. And then they talk about how normally people don't die, they get uh, help, and that's why people don't really die from these wounds. These birds of prey, uh, even though they hit people, they don't really kill people. And owls had never really been the type of bird that kills people but they do hit people and cut people and that's what we're trying to say you have to understand the wounds and then you can solve this crime
3: so she is larry she's outside and going inside and the owl uh the owl attacks and she is injured and she is bleeding and she goes inside and in fact there is evidence uh, which we'll talk about in a second with regard to owl feathers and things uh, that, are, that, 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 that are on her. Uh, but then is it, your, is it your theory that Kathleen is trying to get help so then she falls
1: again on the stairs? The only mistake that was made by the authorities in investigating this case, uh, besides embellishing certain things, was the fact that they got the blood trail backwards. They thought that Mr. Peterson hit her and beat her to death in the bottom of that stairwell and then went running out of this house for about 40 yards carrying a five-foot flexible blow poke, which is a fire tool, and dripping blood all the way out to the circular drive. Well, when I saw the police videotape that evening that happened, it clearly shows that when the police arrived, they walk down the brick steps from the circular drive, and in front of them is a spot of blood, one small spot of blood on the brick walkway that leads from the circular drive on the Kent Street side of the property, leading towards the back door, which is actually the door that they use as they as their front door. It's kind of confusing, but it, yeah. if you think about it, it's just a circular drive, and then they go to the main door to the house. Mm -hmm. At any rate, they go forward to the landing in front of the front door, and there's another drop of blood on the landing. And there's blood on the outside of the door casing. And when the cameraman walks into the house, he swivels the camera around. There's no blood on any walls or anything there, and there's no distortion, uh things being turned over looking like a fight or anything like that. But when he turns it around at about a 90-degree angle down the corridor, about 45, 50 feet, you see Mrs. Peterson, and she is laying in a pool of her own blood. Now, that tells you a lot about this whole incident, is the fact that that pool of blood is the pool that she's sitting in. That's where the blood trail ends, not where it begins. It begins with one drop. Anybody that's a self-respecting deer hunter, bubbles as we call them here in the South, (laughs) knows that when you shoot a deer, it runs off most of the time. They don't drop in their tracks. And the way you go and find your deer is to walk over to the spot where that deer was standing when you shot him. And then you start walking the line, towards the spot where he went into the woods Mm -hmm. and along that area right around there close to where he was standing, you will normally find one drop of blood. That is the first drop that comes out of a wound and reaches an edge and drops to the ground. And as you walk that line towards the woods, you will occur another drop and then more drops, and each drop will give you a little bit more of a hint of what part of the body you hit, how fast the blood is coming out, etc. And then if you continue to follow the spots of blood, you will ultimately get to the body of the deer, and he'll be laying in a pool of his own blood because that's where all the blood is coming out, and it's pooling there. It's not being spread all around. It's pooling. And the same principle takes effect in this case, and that is the blood trail starts outside. And that puts it in the realm of where the owls are.
3: Now, now Larry, uh, the investigators found owl feathers on, yes. Kath- on Kathleen's body, correct?
1: The investigators did not find them. No, that's not correct. What happened was Mrs. Peterson When the EMT people got to the house and assumed that she was dead, and she was, and they looked at it and assumed that this had been a beating, there was a rush to judgment of a murder and all this kind of thing, because of all the spots on the wall of blood. Well, that had gotten there because her hair had been soaked with the blood from where she'd been hit outside, and she's running inside of the house and down the corridor to get help. And then she faints into the bottom of that staircase. Mm. Now, they put her body into a body bag, and they pull it out of there. You see pictures of it coming out on the gurney from the house, and they put it in a hearse and take it to Chapel Hill, eight miles away, for the autopsy to find out what, ha- what killed her. When they get it over there, the medical examiner puts the body on the gurney and opens her left hand and then opens her right hand. And in each of the hands, they find human hairs, and they have been pulled out by the root ball. Now That's called antigen. And sometimes they don't have a sheath to the bottom of the hair shaft, and that indicates being yanked out by force. Well, when you look at it, the medical examiner says, Aha! I think we've got the hair of the killer, and they're going to be Mr. Peterson's hairs. She correctly takes all of the hairs from the right hand and all the hairs from the left hand, puts them in an envelope, seals the envelope, and ships it over to Raleigh, North Carolina, to the State Bureau of Investigation Laboratory to have them analyzed under a microscope. Now, she doesn't know what's on those hairs. She just knows she's got bloody hair. Now, sends it over there. They analyze it at the lab of the SBI. And in doing so, on the first and third page of the first trace evidence report, the first page evidence, third page, excuse me, fourth page, it indicates slide 3832. In that, it says, one cut head hair consistent with that of the victim, antigen, bloody, feather, and it's printed in the English language. You don't have to do any calculating or anything else. I went and I asked the SBI person who did the analysis with the microscope, how was, it, was he sure that was a feather? And he told me, Mr. Pollard, I've looked at everything there is to look at on the face of this earth in the past 40 years here, and if I tell you it's a feather, it's a feather. I said, thank you very much, wow. Mr. Gregory. You are now my expert witness. Wow. So from that moment on, we asked to look at that slide. And we came back to Durham and found out that that slide was in the custody of the Durham Police Department and the locker, evidence locker. We showed it to the district attorney, the reference to that particular slide, and he said he would get it up there for us to look at that very afternoon, which he did. And we looked at it and had to hold it up to the light, uh, fluorescent light, to be able to see a very, very small, infinitesimally small feather that was on this slide. Yeah. We've got something here. Larry. That is because owls are the only, not the only, but only species of birds of prey that have microscopic, feathers. They go all the way down their legs, <clears throat> across their feet, out their toes, through the talons. And they are so small, you can't see them practically with the naked eye. You have to use a microscope. And in doing so, I said, we want to photograph these feather, and we want to put it under a microscope. The district attorney agreed to that. We called in an expert with uh, Microscopes, um, Associated Microscopes Unlimited, in Burlington, uh, Mr. Tim Thompson, and he was excellent, immediately we put it under a microscope, and he had no trouble locating the feather. In addition to that, though, he moves the slide around, and he says, oh, my goodness, look at this. He said, we've got more feathers and they're over near the edge of the slide. And I said, okay, can you take a picture of this? He said, yes. And he took a picture, and he said, well, we're only at 400 power on the microscope. Would you like to go to 800 power? I said, yes, indeed. That would be interesting. So he pulls up these additional feathers, and you clearly see them wrapped around the hair shaft that had been determined to be Mrs. Peterson's hair shaft. In fact, all of the hairs that Mrs. Uh, that were put in and sent to the SBI were Mrs. Peterson's hairs. None of them were Mr. Peterson's. Now, in looking at that slide and and looking at it at 800 power, you clearly see that the feathers are wrapped around her hair shaft. The hair shaft is much bigger in the slide than, this, than the feathers are. I mean, that looks like a limb of a tree almost. It's so big. And the feathers, they're wrapped around it. And on top of the feathers, holding the feathers to the hair shaft are fresh droplets of red blood. Mm. I call that my smoking feather. <laughs>
3: Now, Larry, I'm going, to ask yes. you to, I'm going to ask you to pause for a moment, sure. um, and I want to find out what, what, uh, what Michael Peterson thinks about this. I want to find out what David Rudolph, the attorney, thinks about this. But first of all, I want to mention that Extra Sauce is presented by Rodenheiser, and Rodenheiser is far and above – the guys that I use when it comes to anything HVAC related, anything electrical related, anything plumbing related. So we're gonna take a break and be right back after we okay. hear from uh, after we hear from Rodenheiser. <laughs> Rodenheiser is growing and actively seeking to hire teams of experienced HVAC and plumbing technicians as well as electricians right now. They offer endless benefits, full health and dental insurance, a generous 401k plan, three weeks paid time off, and even tuition reimbursement. So what can you do? How about heading over to Rodenheiser.com to apply now? R-O-D-E-N-H-I-S-E-R. Quit your job and start a career with Rodenheiser. And now, let's get to the show. All right, Larry, thanks for waiting. So uh, why, I want to ask you, if this owl attack happened, why didn't Michael Peterson, who was out at the pool, hear it?
1: I can only say that living here for 70 years, I'm familiar with the territory. I'm familiar with the house. I'm familiar with the uh, area where he claims to have been during this time. And all of the evidence that has been presented at trial, He's very consistent in saying that he was out by the swimming pool. The swimming pool is on the Cedar Street side of that mansion. It is a very, very large house, probably 60, 70 feet. Uh, It's 8,000 square feet. Mm. He is on the other side of this house where this occurred, and there was a fountain in the uh, pool, which was splashing water out. And that's why the little animals go running around. They hear the water splashing at the grocery store that I talked about. Mm. Now, he stays out there. It is a balmy evening. It's an evening that's so 55 to 60-some degrees, and it's midnight. It's dark. At that time, when this incident happens, in my opinion— she is on the other side of this large house. She has gone back in after leaving him at the pool to go back and to get ready for a phone call that is supposedly coming in the next morning. She returns down the terrace. She probably picked up the pasta boxes and was going to take them out to the, uh, the trash cans, the garbage cans, out on the Kent street side of the house, where the garbage cans were located, around on the other side of the circular drive, and when she's moving them around, she gets struck in the back of the head. She does not hear the owls coming, because they have feathers on their wings that they fly silently, and then this bird hits her silently, bam, in the back right corner of the head, And she gets up, and somehow or another, in the gripping process with the owl, the owl becomes entangled in her hair. It has gripped on her skull, and the lacerations are going down the back of her head, cutting the blood vessels, and gripping the hair. Now, this is what is really important. When those owls hit, the legs fold up like the landing gear of an airplane. And that is what pulls that tendon so tight. And when they pull it up like that or when it just absorbs the shock value, it allows the gripping mechanism to take place and it also locks the talons. Mm. They have like a ratchet of in their elbows, so to speak, and they cannot open their talons until they get back to the nest and open the talons because they are stretching their legs out straight again, and that releases that locking mechanism. Mm. And that's when they can let go of their prey and start to eat it or cut it up and feed it to their young in the nest. That is key in understanding the mechanics of this whole thing. She has reached up and grabbed that owl by its legs. Mm and the owl is trying desperately to get out of there. Owls are very powerful with their wings, and when they do, they jerk. And when they jerk out, that's how you have so many hairs that have been yanked out by the root ball and are cut, crushed, and broken. All three of those things that a blowpoke could not do. The blood trail starts outside. The police videotape is evidence of that the blood trail leads clearly into the house down the corridor by this time her hair is soaked it is like a paintbrush that's been stuck into a bucket of blood and when she gets to that staircase in the bottom of it she turns to see what is coming down the corridor after her because she doesn't know really what it is that's hit her it's in the back of her head on top of her head but she hadn't really been able to see anything. All she knows is she's in a lot of pain, her hair's being pulled, and she turns around and faints. And when she faints backwards, her head is in a whiplash action, and that slings blood onto the walls. That's why you get 10,000 spots of blood on the wall. Not this beating with a blowpoke not a fall down the steps. You had to have that head of hair soaked in blood long before it got to that staircase. And that's the missing piece that nobody thought about. That is where her head is being flung backwards from falling backwards into that stairwell and fainting. And she's fainted, she's in the bottom of that stairwell, and she is in an awkward position leaning up against the bottom wall. You clearly see in the pictures the blood that's coming down in a triangular pattern on that wall. And it's wall is just streaming down there. And then the other spots are on the other wall. Now, she lays there for a long period of time, bleeding. And you know that because the police videotape has shown you the pictures of a pool of blood that she was seen sitting in when they got there. Also, you see that she has blood on the soles of her feet and on the heels of her feet. The only way to get blood on the soles and heels of your feet is to step in it. Now, she attempts to regain consciousness after laying there for many, many minutes, losing blood, and she... Has had alcohol, Valium, and Flexoril in her blood system. And that's a very powerful chemical compound to have at one time. That's why she's under, uh, she's laying there and she's in shock. And they know she's in shock. The evidence from the autopsy report clearly shows uh, the brain, uh, the neurosurgeon said that there were red neurons found in her brain. Uh, slices, and that is a clear indication of low blood pressure and of shock, and that's why he lays there for a long period of time. Now, eventually, though, she does attempt to regain consciousness and stand up, but she's in an awkward position on that floor in the bottom of that stairwell, and she's pushing up against that wall with her right and left arms, the upper part of her arms, the elbows up, she's pushing against that wall trying to get leverage to help her stand up. She's weak. She's under the influence of these things. And she stands up, finally stands up, and when she does, she steps into the pool of her own blood. And when blood is on wood, it's very slippery and gooey. And bingo, she falls backwards again. She slips goes backwards, hits her head again on the corner of the uh, molding at the bottom of the staircase and gets the very last laceration that is under the crown of her head. In the back is you, mm-hmm. your, your crown underneath there where a blowpipe could not have reached nor could have made the pattern that is on her scalp, which you clearly see in the photographs of the wounds.
3: Larry, were you ever able to discuss this theory with Michael Peterson's attorney, David
1: Rudolph? I tried to contact Mr. Rudolph, but they were busy preparing for their oral arguments to the jury. And I could, I had called the state bar, uh, the North Carolina State Bar for attorneys, and had asked for an opinion as to what I should do with this evidence. It was getting late in the trial. And the uh, I spoke with Alice Mine, who is the ethics expert for the North Carolina State Bar. She directed me to take this evidence to both the defense counsel and the district attorney immediately. And I had to tell her, well, you know, they're making their arguments to the jury right now. I can't go running in and do that. I've got to wait until they are through. And that is exactly what I did. I had met with Tom Maher, who was a co-counsel with Mr. Rudolph, prior to the time that they had uh, given their oral argument. But they were not interested in changing horses at the end of the stream, and I cannot blame them for that. Uh, They, I think, acted responsibly. Even though this evidence was very powerful and compelling, uh, I couldn't fault them for that. I was trying to, if I wish, I wished I'd had it earlier Mm -hmm. and taken it in there. Then there'd never been a need for a trial, but I didn't. It took me time to put all of these pieces together. And I put it together from the, like the July 1st start date to the October 8th or 9th end of trial date. And Mm -hmm. it all began to fit together. And I took it to them. Now, since that time, I had asked to speak with Mr. Rudolph. He had left town after the verdict, and he didn't return for a couple of weeks. But when he came back, we met with him and showed him this evidence. And I could tell he was very interested in it. He was looking at it. He was trying to totally absorb it. And he was sitting there thinking, well, I don't know to give this guy Pollard any credibility or not. And the district attorney he certainly wasn't going to give me any credibility. The trial was over with, and he's thinking, well, where have you been? After I had taken it to them, they decided they were not going to raise the issues on appeal simply because none of that had been introduced at trial, and that is correct. They didn't get an opportunity to introduce that at the trial. But after two years of waiting through Uh, the Courts of Appeals and the uh, the Supreme Court uh, to come back and say this was a fair trial, this, that, and the other, and not getting any relief, uh, Mr. Peterson heard about my idea of the uh, owl theory. He had heard about it from his family members. I would written an editorial and put it in the newspaper on January the 24th of 2002, and it was on the editorial page with a picture of an owl. And I had told everybody what I was thinking had occurred. I'd been all over town. It had been all over the newspapers. And they were quickly ridiculing the owl theory, writing editorials about searching for the killer owl uh, and making fun of me uh, taking pictures of owls and putting crosshairs over them on stickers and sticking them on the glass doors down at the courthouse and the Prejudicial pretrial publicity was extensive in this case. It went on and on and on. But at any rate, uh, that be the case. You had book writers that were writing uh, books about this case. You had other TV channels that were, I think, Dateline 2020 did three or four different episodes on TV about it. And I'm sitting there saying, I brought this forward. I have put it in the newspaper. I have been to a federal judge and asked to get his assistance on this for some of the evidence that I had to compile in this case and be able to legally possess it. I said, I don't know what I can do more than this. And as far as I was concerned, it was a colossal rush to judgment. And it was my obligation, my responsibility, and my duty to bring forth the stuff that I had. I have an obligation because I am his next-door neighbor, and I am a Christian, and I believe that the good book says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Help your neighbor. Don't bear false witness against him. So I can't go out and lie for him or do anything like that, and because I was a lawyer, a sworn lawyer, that I had taken an oath to. And it says that lawyers are ministers of justice, and they must bring forth things that they know uh, in a crime or anything else if they know that is relevant uh, and something that should be brought forward to the authorities. And that is what I did. I did what I think is right and morally right, and I did the right thing. And it's now come into pass that it's taken 16 years for anybody to really pay any attention to it.
3: Larry, it is a fascinating theory and the evidence and the work you put into it. Those of us who've been obsessed with the staircase are very, very fascinated with your theory, Larry. And I thank you for joining us and giving us a little bit of extra sauce on the Peterson situation and the Netflix documentary, The Staircase. Thank you. All. So
2: what do you think? I I totally buy his theory. I mean, I I watched most of of the staircase and just looking at the wounds explaining the 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 feathers is really what oh, gets Oh, it's amazing. Me. Since owls are the only ones who have those kind of yeah, feathers. Yeah. And they're in their clumps of hair.
3: Yeah. It's just I I'm it's completely believable. You know, yeah. And that's a guy who was found guilty and did eight nine years in jail. Right for what happened to his wife. Yeah, and it, it was it, w- it wasn't him. It was it was the bird that it, did it, it. Yes, as, as, as yeah. we just heard, it was the bird that did it. I I am
2: very convinced. I'm totally yeah. convinced. You know, and I also, if you watch it, I don't know if this is a spoiler alert. You you realize there's a bias towards Michael Peterson. Yeah, because he ran for mayor in Durham. He used to write for the newspaper. He didn't say some. He said some. You know. He had some criticisms of some local authorities, uh, police-wise. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And, that, and so he was a weird dude. I right. mean, and he was, and he he was eccentric. Is, is, is a weird. And dude. there's other things that I think that could have been biased. Yeah, that that uh, was dragged out in the press, and and uh, but this Al thing, I'm totally buying it.
3: It's unbelievable. Yeah. Now we know. Who? Oh did the actual crime? Did you have to end it with a dad <laughs> joke like that? <laughs> I, think I did. Yeah. All right. Thanks for listening this week to Extra Sauce. We'll be back again with another episode. And if you enjoyed it, please subscribe on iTunes or on Google Play or Stitcher. We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch.